I'm Justin Peterson. And I'm Brian Lee. Welcome to the Voice Culture Podcast, where we traverse the rich historical legacy of voice training from the greatest minds and teachers of the art. Each episode features lively conversation, fascinating historical insights, and practical application for today's singer. This is going to be an introductory um, segment, and mm-hmm. we're going to be sharing 52 of these fads and fancies of singing from Herbert Witherspoon's 1925 book, Singing. Incredible book. Um, one of the m- most wonderful books, I think, in pedagogical history. Yes. Um, in fact, Edward F- um, Foreman, who was a writer uh, and pedagogue and teacher in Minnesota, uh said that this book on singing by Herbert Witherspoon, he would place alongside Tozzi and Mancini, which I thought was very high praise because um, Mr. Foreman has a has an incredible breadth of knowledge of history Yes, um, in his writing. So that's, I think, very, very high praise. From and this book came out in 1925. 1925. So mm-hmm. we're almost, what, five years from its being, uh, it's a yeah. centenary here? Right. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about Herbert Witherspoon really quickly. Uh, who was he? He was an American singer. Mm-hmm. A born bass, in 1873. Right? Bass, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Born in 1873, lived uh, in Buffalo, New York. Uh, graduated from Yale. Uh, he, was a, uh, he was a member of the Glee Club, the Yale Glee Club. And after he left school, uh, he studied with Horatio Parker and Edward McDowell. Uh, I believe Her- Horatio Parker was actually Charles Ives' teacher. Yes, I actually learned that in my chamber choir because we sang some Horatio Parker and Ives on a concert once. Oh, yes. Well, there's a little connection there. Yeah. Once he uh, was kind of, I don't know if he was done with those uh, teachers, but then he did go to Europe and he sort of did a tour of Europe, kind of visiting all the different voice teachers of Europe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the people that he worked with, which I think is kind of fabulous, is Jean-Baptiste Faure, not to be Mm -hmm. confused with Faure, Mm -hmm. but Jean-Baptiste Faure, who was a, a baritone, and Jacques Bouy. Jacques Bouy is known historically as the first baritone to sing the Toreador song from Carmen. So he was the first one. And then he did go on to work with Francesco Lamperti, who is, uh, mm, I believe, the son, right? Or no, am I wrong? Giovanni Battista is the son. So yes, Francesco, Francesco is the daddy. was the dad, the senior. Francesco's daddy. Yeah. Daddy Lamperti. So yep. He, <laughs> yep. he went to work with Daddy Lamperti. In, and I also did work in, he studied in London and Berlin. Uh, he made his Metropolitan Opera debut in 1908 in the role of uh, Titorel in uh, Wagner's Parsifal. Mm-hmm. And he stayed with the company until he retired from singing in 1914. So 1908, about 1914. And then he decided, I want to be a teacher. And he he did make a lot of recordings from um, 1907 to 1917. And uh, he went out to Chicago, of all places, and started yes. to teach out in Chicago for a time. And he became the artistic director of the Chicago Civic Opera. Um, after um, uh, uh, Giulio Gatti Cazzazza retired at the Metropolitan Opera, he took over his position. And sadly, was only at his desk for about six weeks uh, when he died suddenly in 1935. And I believe and he, he was, died on the job. Right? He did die on the job. In he his literally office. died in his office yeah. at the Met. Yeah, he did. Yeah. He had a heart attack. Mm-hmm. He was meeting with the assistant manager, and his final words were, that's grand. 
uh, <laughs> because he was looking at the subscriptions for the season, the upcoming season of the oh, Metropolitan yeah. Opera. Yeah. And uh, he was very excited about that. So um, what is so wonderful about Herbert Witherspoon, in my opinion, as somebody who's really uh, been reading him and studying him, is that he was a singer who had problems with his voice. Yes. Right. He wasn't a fully formed sort of, oh, my gosh, I'm a natural talent and I'm just great. I think the thing that I admire so much about him is that he was so industrious mm-hmm. and that he really did want answers. He wanted to know what was going on uh, with his own voice. And I think because of the answers that he was able to get through his own study, he mm-hmm. was able to be a rather effective voice teacher. And I think that's one of the reasons why singing uh, in 1925, his book, is such a fantastic little book. Yeah, you could, you, throughout, you, again and again, you see his passion for problem solving. Yes. Um, and, uh, and his disdain for um, nincompoopery, right? Yes. I mean, f- to verbosity. You know, he seems to, his little book is not that thick. If you That's pick up right. singing, it's a small little book. Yes. He really didn't like, uh, he, he used to talk about people who talked about science. He said it's just cl- cloaked in verbosity, which I just love that phrase. Um, lots of words, right? So I, I have this little exa- uh, excerpt before we go into these fads and fancies of his, but mm-hmm. I just wanted to share a little bit about his, his experience as a student, because I think it's a really interesting um, uh, context for Terrific. his life. This is his quote here. I myself studied with many teachers, both in the United States and Europe. I continually asked why, but I seldom got a satisfying answer. Some teachers were patient and tried to explain, but had not the required knowledge to do so. Others flew into a passion, enraged because they knew that they did not know. Mm. I learned little from most of them because it was impossible for me to do things without knowing how and why, and also because I had a very stubborn and unruly voice and a throat which took years to conquer. But I did learn that many of the teachers of singing were guessing nearly all the time, and that few had a method of teaching based upon real knowledge and law. Tricks stunts absurdities of all kinds were what we bought some talked science some preached psychology some quite frankly experimented and learned more from the pupil than the pupil learned from the teacher one teacher told me to pull in when i inhaled another to push out one to place my voice at the back another at the front one told me that the bass voice was placed more in the head than even the soprano another that it was placed (laughs) entirely in the chest One said to form the lips like a trumpet, another to sing with a smile. One taught that the higher tones went back, another that they were placed in the forehead. One insisted upon a high larynx, another upon a low larynx. (laughs) One placed the high tones in all pupils with the aid of the vowel oo, another with e. One told me to lean forward and bow the head, another to press the head and neck backward against the collar. One said to focus the voice in the upper front teeth, another to feel uh, to focus in the back part of the hard palate, one to feel something, another to think something, and so on endlessly. Mm. There was no idea of natural law or coordination. It was all specialization reduced to localization. Let the reader think for a moment of the needless waste of time and money, and what is worse the mental torture of such an experience. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's a foreshadowing of what I'll <laughs> probably say about the next part we're going to get into, which is these problems 
were there a hundred years ago, <laughs> they're here today. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. We just, I always tell people, we just put different clothes on. We don't change. We just put different clothes on. <laughs> right. Really? Yeah. So shall we run through this list? We'll do the first 10 here. Let's do. So okay. this is, this is from, his, uh, well, the printed page 51 in his uh, out of print book. Um, he has, a, he has a uh, chapter nine that's, headlined fads and fancies in the teaching of singing so i think we're going to talk about the first 10-ish or so yeah, right and we can just trade them off how about that we'll just like beautiful read, read one each one up okay you want to start with number one sure and let me read the introductory paragraph oh, sure, too. Sure, sure. so uh he says these fads and fancies were gathered by the author either directly from his own experience in various studios or from books or from others who have seen and heard them taught no teacher or book is named the fads and fancies are all facts in the sense that they have all been at some time or now or are now being taught. So the first one, number one, placing for nasal resonance in a special locality, generally resulting in nosy singing. Right. Yeah. Stick it in your nose, Brian. Yeah, stick it in your <laughs> nose, right? Right. Right. Yeah. So, in his book, we need to also say that resonance is a term that Witherspoon calls bugaboo, right? He, he, he says this new bugaboo resonance. He's like, right. I can't find this word anywhere in any of the old texts on singing. Um, uh, he kind of didn't have very warm feelings about resonance, right? I think no, it, that, that term in, in my research had, didn't really come in until the end of the 1800s. Right. And uh, certainly he, he bridged this time, um, mm -hmm. you know, and yes, it, it, uh, it's a tricky thing. Um, so nosy singing. So this is really interesting because uh, I can think of a couple modern methods. One calls itself a method. One doesn't call itself a method, but they're both trademarked courses you take that will talk about nasality mm. um, and nasal resonance and what it means and whether it's desirable or not. And a lot of times I find nowadays, a lot of times it's a style thing. So like I can mm -hmm. think of one teacher who claims that like nosy singing uh, might be a value in uh, say country music or some musical theater. Right. That there might be places where, but I'm not sure when he says placing for nasal resonance, mm -hmm. uh, I also am reminded of the whole idea of the mask. Right. Which is a, that's a really complicated subject, actually, because it starts to confuse the idea of cause and effect. Right. Big time. So um, there can be sensations in the nose that result in a sound that does not sound nasal. Right. And oftentimes the difference between brass and nasality is confused by people. And it's also possible for a, a real constricted, shut-down voice oh, yes. to be uh, physiologically nasal, saying the nasal port is open, but the voice is not brassy or bright, but is muffled. Right. So, yeah. So it, it's a, a nasal resonance, however, is a thing you run into in some of the literature from the early 20th century, and it's kind of kind of interesting it's, it comes in a lot and i think the thing that i always remember remind myself is, is the nasal nasal passage is not adjustable yes 
Right. For it to be an effective part of the resonance system, it needs to be able to be adjusted. Well, the nasal resonance, you cannot adjust the nose. Right. It's yeah. It's fixed. Y yes. Right. Um, so, yeah. Nasal oh, resonance. Go ahead. Give us number two. Number Justin. two. Continued use of the vowels aw and o. Causing dark, gloomy tones and humped up, stiffened tongue. So Witherspoon, in his book on singing, doesn't really advocate using too much of aw and o because he does feel that the sound makes the voice really gloomy and dark. So he's always saying, you know, only in the most extended cases would you want to use those vowels in particular. So um, I think it's important here to note the word continued use. Right. So I guess right. I would say as a teacher, you know, if you keep someone on awe and O for a long time, the resonance is, you know, the voice is going to get move in that direction. Right. So it'll be more dark. And so for for Witherspoon, I think he was much more in favor of a brighter overall general uh, sound of the voice, which is evident from Witherspoon's recordings of his own singing. I was going to say that. Yes. His, his bass singing in the old recordings, even with the old technology, you can clearly hear that it is not what we would call woofy, no, or, or throaty, or booming. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was, it was, it was uh, rich and bright, even while being obviously bass in terms of range. And also, the the flexibility of the voice was quite yeah. healthy. Hey, I have a question for you on this number two. Yep. So he, yep. when he talks about the aw vowel, he has a w. A w. Later mm -hmm. on, does he also talk? Does he talk about the bright aw with different letters like a h or something? Yes, he does. Okay. His, okay. His, his his phonetics are a little funky in terms of the he they, he doesn't obviously he's not using the ipa. No, he's kind of using like how traditional English pronunciation of words, exactly. right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and he does talk about you know we'll talk maybe in a future session. He he does say that the aw general aw vowel is very difficult for the American singer yeah. so one of his tricks just kind of go on a tangent here is to use the pro first person pronoun i mm. i mm -hmm. so when you say the vowel i because of the the vanish of the what he calls the vanish of the e the diphthong yeah the ah of i ah ah tends to have a more brighter italianate quality yes than ah ah that sort of falls back in the throat yes so he uses the i pronoun with the tongue movement as a way to uh, find a better, shall we say, t resonance tuning Interesting. Yeah. of the ah vowel. But yeah. he does say that the ah is not a vowel that you can just ha oftentimes have. It's a vowel that he uses these uh, phonetics, which we'll talk about, and I'm sure in, in the future, yeah. to get to, to get to. Right. The ah is a landing space. The ah is a place you end up. And yeah. then once you get to your perfectly balanced ah vowel, mm -hmm. which sort of shows, which shows everything working in the instrument, then you can sing all your scales, you can do all your stuff on it. But it rarely is the singer who is able to do the ah. And I think any singer mm -hmm. of any classical background would agree that ah is a very tricky vowel to sing. It's it the most a, naked, for sure. It's the most naked vowel. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. That's number two. So cool. avoiding ah and o, oh, well, not avoiding them, but using them a lot, mm -hmm. right, which is going to make the voice too dark. I think this is the thing. When he was working with resonance in his own way, mm -hmm. he was using vowels to get there. Yes. If the voice exemplified a particular quality of sound, yes. well, what did he do? The opposite of it. Mm -hmm. So if the voice was dark, he didn't use vowels that would make the voice darker. If the voice was overly bright, though, he absolutely did use these aw and o vowels. Yes. Because he needed to rebalance the voice back to the other direction. And that's a big part of his pedagogy. Yeah, hit balance really comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. A lot, yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. Numéro 3, number 3. Number 3 is trumpet lips. No matter what the vowel, consonant, or word are ruinous to correct pronunciation. Now, <laughs> trumpet lips, what? So mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's talking about the protruded. Right, uh, fish lips. Extended the fish lips, yes. <laughs> yes. Everything and, through the fish lips shape. Yeah. Right? So you get sort of what Richard Miller would call an equal distortion of all the vowels, right? Everything <laughs> yes. is equally distorted. Yes. Right? Yeah. The, I mean, a, a lot of these fads and fancies in here um, in certain contexts would be a, a remediation for a problem. Yes. Uh, but but to, to be when the remedy becomes the dogma and is used mm. all the time. Uh, right. This is when they become problems. Right. Cause <laughs> I definitely I often, think yeah, because they're stuck. Right. Yes. They're stuck there. You yes. can't get out of it. Yeah. yeah the trumpet lips is uh, a very interesting uh, thing. I think some people still kind of maybe hold on to that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know some teachers in New York would would talk about, you know, putting everything through the ooh vowel, right? Everything goes through ooh. Right. Ooh, all your vowels go through ooh. Yeah. You know? So that's sort of the same idea. Yes. Yes. Yeah, but also at the end of the end of the day, I think he's he's so brilliant here in what he's saying is this idea of, you know, correct pronunciation. Right. For for Witherspoon, the words were so important. Yes. And like we were, we'll, we'll, we've talked about Walter Foster and his idea about the importance of the word and its expression. You know, this is also going back to the Renaissance, Brian, with the musica reservata, right? Yeah. Where the idea was expression of the word through music. Yeah. But the word painting was important. How the word was colored was important. That's that's a big part of this Italian uh, style of singing that, that often gets neglected. How we say the words matters. The color we put in the voice when we sing the words matters. Yes, yes. Um, and so if you cannot understand the words that the singer is singing, well, then what... It's a, what a, is it Montserrat Caballé would say, well, we're just at a beautiful sound exhibition. Yes, and, and uh, I was just thinking as you led up to that, and especially with the Caballé comment, um, part of my background is instrumental. And uh, as an instrumentalist, you know, we make sounds with an instrument, but we don't have words. But, but what a blessing, what, a, what an integral, important part the words are. I mean, it's... it's to to embrace the words and realize words ha- having words with the music uh makes singing a whole different kind of musical art from playing all the other melodic instruments yes you know the voice definitely is a melodic instrument but the the fusion of speech with music is can be should be absolutely yes. magical and yes. i have a theory well uh tangent time but i think this is one reason why uh, opera has such a small niche uh, in in sung drama compared to musical theater these days, because mm. mu- uh, pronunciation in musical theater is a huge value. It's vital, yeah. And I uh, and I think I think having the words preserved, <laughs> right, is is really important. Uh, and and people relate relate to it. I mean, that's that's what one of the things that draws people to right. beautiful singing. I think it's it, the, the, the music of, of opera is a double communicator, right? It's a, it's a linguistic experience mm-hmm. of communication, mm-hmm. but also a tonal experience yes. of communication. Yes, absolutely. And when one of those obviously is, is over-accentuated, uh, then you're obviously un- unbalanced. Yeah. Right? You, don't, you need both. You need yeah. both to exist together, in, and that's why that's so difficult. 
because you know there and you know you and I both know there's nothing more boring than this sort of like monochromatic tonal palette yeah that never changes mm-hmm. throughout an entire composition a song an art song a, an aria yeah but everything is painted the same color yes it's, there's no expressive emotional vibrancy that comes into the sound the the italians called it what the tinta i believe the the color the tint the tint mm-hmm. of the sound See, it's 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 so boring. It's so boring. It may be beautiful, but at the same time, who cares? Yeah. Because there's nothing of linguistic communication behind it. Yes. So don't do trumpet lips. No trumpet <laughs> lips. And also, intelligibility is important, right? We want to understand what we're saying. Oh yeah. Yeah. Is this me number four? Yeah, no matter. Quattro. The lowered and relaxed soft palate, destructive of ring. And causing nasal, buzzy, weak tone. Well, we still we know that's true today, Brian. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of the anatomists and all the people who talk about what is the cause of nasality, right? Is a drop soft palate. Yeah. So if the sound is truly kind of nasal, it has more of a honk to it. And uh, obviously there's no ring in it. There can be so much cognitive dissonance around this one because... Mm. Uh, a lot of teachers will teach the idea of of a ring in the voice through nasals. They say, "Oh, well, we we'll use nasals to get the ring going," uh, and it's just it's um, and that may be an interesting backdoor into better singing. I won't say it's not sometimes, right, right. but the fact is that uh, singing through the nose is never uh, uh, a kind of the kind of ring. <laughs> <laughs> right, one gets right. by by having well, a, and, yes, well exactly, used. and and if you were singing, let's say an M, yeah, or an N, the yeah. soft palate is going to do something. But the minute you go into a vowel, yeah, hopefully, if yeah. the vowel is adjusted correctly, the, the soft palate's going to go up, yeah. Otherwise, you're contaminating. This is why a lot of people don't like humming, yes, pedagogically, yeah, because the hum will contaminate the vowel, yeah, and it'll make the vowel nosy or make it make it make it uh nasal yeah yeah. so they stay away from it i love the nasal consonants but i always teach them as a contrast Mm, so so mm. like ma or hunga Mm -hmm. is gonna you know to to show oh okay the the other part of that word is the complete opposite Mm. of the nasal um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but yeah that's that's definitely um and his i will say that his uh, value system was based around uh, what we would call classical or opera, right, right. you know, type of type of singing. But, right. Yeah. The classical model of singing. Mm-hmm. Now, and that's where I always tell my own students in studio, uh, be whatever they style they sing. There's, you know, we always move the boat in both directions. And I always say, you know, this sound is more classical, but it may not be appropriate for this sound that you want to go for. So let's, you know, like you often say, you know, let's explore both polarities, right? Both yeah. sides of the spectrum. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, number five. Okay, number five uh, is the locally raised palate, generally causing stiffness of the voice organs. Rory, that's R-O-A-R-Y, like a roar, hollow tone, and very frequently tremolo as well. Yeah. So this is interesting because uh, in a lot of styles of music and especially in the whole gamut of what we call classical, uh, we know that the palate can't be low. Mm. Generally, we talk, you know, it's agreed that the palate rises and makes space, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, but if if we're thinking about our palate while we sing, and we are we gain uh, volitional control of it, which is not too hard to do. Mm. Uh, but we get we can get into a a, a place of of uh, overdoing. <laughs> no. Well, right. And I and, oftentimes and, see the admonition of you know making space. You yeah. see, this idea of make space, make space. My reaction to that is always saying, you know, have a finite amount of space in your head. Right. You know, you yeah. can't make space that doesn't exist. Right. So I always laugh at those those admonitions. But what I usually find is this idea of, of this lifting of the soft palate is usually an attempt to make a particular kind of a sound. Yeah. Right. Which is obviously its goal. Which which we would probably think of as maybe a warmer tone. Yes. Right? The idea to make the tone warmer, because obviously, acoustically, we know when you have more space, you're going to get a, a darker color in the voice, right? Yeah. The less space there is, you're going to get a brighter sound. Yeah. But it really kind of leads to this sort of manipulated sound that, yeah. again, destroys all communication. Right. It can't always stay the same because that whole neighborhood of where the palate is is totally related to pronunciation absolutely and all yeah. those muscles back there are swallowing muscles yes they're they're they lead right into the swallowing muscles and and there can be many complications absolutely i mean it's kind of like the bert lar sort of sound right yes. i'm trying to like lift myself up right just completely terrible yeah. No one give me money for that sound. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and if you do, you're all being the bamboozled. Bamboozled. Yeah. 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 I think that still lives, though. I think that idea of the lift, lift of the soft palate, you know, raise your soft palate. I think that lift, that lives, that lives on. Oh, it sure does. That it lives sure on today. But like a zombie. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're on for number six. Yeah, six. I think you're doing even numbers. Oh, is this me? I think it's you. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, number six, the raised larynx causing chicken voice, <laughs> tight, pinched, unyielding, frequently white voice. We used to always make fun of Maria Callas in graduate school th- thinking about chicken voice. You know, because she would always say, kind of sound. You know, oh, my the, gosh. I think yeah. of uh, uh, first act of Traviata um, with the, the, the slurred uh, pairs of 16th notes in. Oh, right. Simpre libera. Right. Yeah. A little chickeny. A little chickeny. Yeah. 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 So obviously, I mean, Witherspoon is a person, again, and that's why we love him. He noticed that we need a, 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 um, an agreement here that we, we don't stick it in one place, right? We don't want the larynx high, yeah. necessarily speaking, as a permanent thing, mm-hmm. any more than we want it low as a permanent thing, that the mm-hmm. larynx should be able to move. Yep. Uh, I just love that. Well, you let's know, it, go ahead and lead right into seven because yeah. it's totally related, which is exactly yeah. the locally lowered or pressed down larynx causing dark, lugubrious tone with a swallowed, inactive tongue. Mm. And oh my goodness, uh, I, I have uh, blogged and ranted and talked about this for a long time because um, this is what you see in the talent contest when they want to sound like an opera singer. Yes, yes. It's yes. the the jammed down, pressed down larynx, lower, kept low by by, by any uh, means necessary. Any Brian. means necessary. Yes. Any means necessary. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's really quite 
uh, well, th and also that relates to a lot of the, the other things in terms of, you know, once again, you have lack of flexibility in terms of uh, making words understood. Um, it messes around with your high range. And oftentimes a pressed down larynx making a, a woofy deep sound also cuts down on what people think they're doing, which is making the voice big enough to project. Right. Because it, it, it makes a certain size of certain overtones and it totally cuts out certain other overtones. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Definitely. It's deep. also, it's very common as you, we have talked about too, in male singers. Yes. Right. Yeah. And in an attempt to masculinize the voice. Right. 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 To make the voice sound more uh, authoritative or more powerful or more rich than nature has intended it to be, perhaps by its own sort of uh, physiological limitations. So it's um, uh, it's interesting that he would um, be able to, to parse out those two things, right? You don't want it high and you don't want it low. Again, right. balance. Yep, balance. This idea of balance. Yeah. All right. I think we're moving on then to number eight. eight. Yeah. Abdominal breathing, oh which inhibits rib breathing and, of course, ruins correct coordination. There is really no such form of breathing, and it's a misnomer. Ooh, fighting words. Fighting words, because we're talking about breathing now. But here's the thing. <laughs> I want to point this out, because I think this is a really important uh, uh, sort of connection. Um, we have to remember that Herbert Witherspoon worked with Jean-Baptiste Faure in Paris. Uh -huh. Jean-Baptiste Faure was really big on these ideas of breathing in the ribs. He used to laugh at people who would talk about breathing low. He said, there's, I, I, I'm going to try to paraphrase this quote, but he said, there may be wind down there, but it's not wind for singing. So, <laughs> you know, he All understood right. that any of the, that stuff in the ab abdomen is a digestive system, not a respiratory system. Uh -huh. And uh, and I think, you know, Witherspoon is echoing a little bit of, of that, uh, of Faure's um, feelings about you know the being the able the ability of the ribs to move as a sort of motivating force, um, we know obviously that it's a coordination between the ribs and the abs, but for for many teachers, the perhaps uh, um, uh, attention of the of the abdominal muscles takes a very high uh, precedence in their in their pedagogy. Yeah, and, there's uh, a lot of teachers who who will even uh, make assertions like you can never get your breath low enough. You know, right. think of it low, right. think of it below your belly button, think of it even lower than that. And then after that, think of it even lower. And then you get, right, right. it starts to become pornographic. <laughs> it's like, what are we actually working on here? And I, think, <laughs> and I think for some singers, it's more of a, what I used to, what, what I love to refer to as Dumbo's Feather. You know, uh -huh. um, if you've ever seen the, the 1940 film, 40s or so with Dumbo. The entire idea is that Dumbo can fly, right? He's an, he's an, uh, an elephant that can fly. Yep. Uh, but he doesn't know that. He doesn't know why he can do that. And so uh, they convince him that if he has this feather in his, in, he holds this feather in his trunk, then he, he can fly. And the feather gives him, he's a, it's the talisman, right? That it gives him the special mm -hmm. ability yeah. to fly. Right. Uh, I think sometimes the breathing pedagogies are more of a Dumbo's feather than actual reality. Mm. I think they're more mm. of a psycho psychological uh, safety for mm -hmm. people than an actual physiological reality. You know, I agree with that. And one reason why, I went on a YouTube kick a few years back 
where I looked at films of singers past and present singing. Uh, and I, for this, I picked just female opera singers to narrow it down. And I found incredible singing where shoulders went up and down, mm. where only the abdomen moved, where hardly anything moved, where the whole torso expanded and contracted. I found the gamut among really top-notch, incredible singers of the past. And, and so there, which shows that a person's pet idea may help give them security and help them with, gets them through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, right. but that fear management, right? Yeah, yeah. My pedagogy is based in fear management. Let me manage your fear. But that <laughs> it kind of tells me that what my conclusion was it doesn't matter so much how the breath comes in, but what you do with it once it's mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. sort of the. Well, and understanding the, the reality, you know, we've talked about, we'll talk about um, Ted Diamond, I'm yeah. sure at some point. Probably. <laughs> but he does some really great physiological, under, he has a great physiological understanding of, of the process of singing. In other words, the logic is, if singing is built upon, as you said, management of the breath, um, we know that when muscles contract, they demand oxygen. Mm-hmm. So if there is an overcontraction of muscles in the body, that puts a drag or a requirement on the body to supply those tensing muscles with oxygen. Yeah. So the more tension in the body, muscularly speaking, that occurs, yes, puts a higher demand on the oxygen to uh, facilitate its tension. So all of that gets misdirected away from the singing gesture and yeah. goes into those muscles. And so yeah. the singer is always wanting for breath. You know, and they, even they'll say, "I'm," su-, you know, I'm quoting here, but they'll say, "I'm supporting," and I'm still running out of oxygen. Well, you're you're over tensing everything, right? The, yeah. You're using mu- also the abdominal muscles, as far as I understand, and I'm not a scientist. Well, those are muscles of um, exhalation, are they not? So when it's a sort of a control for the yeah, exhalatory right, process. Right. So if the goal of singing is to be able to sing a phrase from beginning to end with a good amount of air, why would you tense exhalatory muscles? Why would you tense muscles that cause the exhalation to occur faster at a faster rate? I'm yeah. not saying don't engage your ribs or your abdomen. I'm not saying that. But I'm talking about overt tension. I'm talking about grabbing on the, to the epigastrium for dear life mm-hmm. and, and thinking that's going to somehow help you. We'll well, it's going to make you lose oxygen even faster. I have a feeling in the future we'll dig into that a yeah. lot because yeah. there's this whole thing about do you pull in consciously oh. and blah, blah, blah. But right. Whew, yeah. Those so, are all the yeah, fads and fancies, Brian. Yeah. Fads and fancies. Are you number nine? No, I'm you number are nine. number nine. Yes. Okay. So number nine is the fad of making every attack with the aid of consonants preventative, no, preventive, of clear vowel attack and well-formed vowels. And uh, we talked about this briefly before we went live with this recording. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting in this book is he does use... Uh, syllables for mm. for training sometimes, uh, but here's he's cautioning against doing it all the time. Just like don't use the same vowels all the time, and mm. and don't you know always sing high larynx. Always sing. He comes keeps coming back to flexibility and balance, yes. and um, I can think of one very popular current uh, franchise in the world of trademarked singing methods mm. that makes use of of uh, 
of a lot of consonants of consonants almost all the time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to the point of how do you ever stop using consonants uh to to do an exercise um so it's interesting that he was seeing seeing this tendency even back then yes in some cases uh because in the written record before 1925 we don't see in the written uh treatises and books on singing the use of consonants much at all but apparently he no. was seeing it at this time somewhere. you know i think he got that from and if we look at the if his again i'm coming back to his mentors again but if yeah. you look at lamperti okay lamperti does a lot of work with law yes la, la, la. that's right there's, there's a freedom lot of, of the tongue yeah right so i think lamperti would get what what witherspoon would call correct action yeah with the tongue using the tongue on mm-hmm. law mm-hmm Good point. But he does see that, you know, you eventually have to start on an ah. You eventually have to sing an e. You have to sing vowels. Yeah. Uh, and that we can't always use the, what I call, pilot consonants forever. You have to be able to start with the vowels. And some pedagogies that will start with vowels only can be assisted by consonants. Sure. Right? Like, one of the things that Witherspoon talks about, if there's a, is a very hard attack, mm-hmm. right, what we would call a glottal, yeah. Or a what a pressed phonation, if we're using fancy words. Uh, he cures that by, again, going to the opposite end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So having a, a singer start with an HM, right? A hum. Right. Hum. Yeah, breath to before go the sound. opposite direction. Yeah. Again, doing the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's the problem. What's the problem? And now let's do the opposite. Yeah. Um, so the ability to start a vowel cleanly in the center of the pitch, in the middle of the vowel, is kind of an important thing. Yes. And it's good that he, he 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 says that. And I think in his book he does say that the eventually the, the goal is to sing on ah. The sing the goal is to start everything with ah. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the consonants are merely just merely just a facilitator, a phonetic to facilitate correct action or coordination, as he calls it. Yeah. Very good. So finally number ten as yes. our last extra, a little Drum fad here. Roll, please. <laughs> the avoidance of exercises and the use of arias and songs as the only medium for development. Hmm. Yeah. I oftentimes think we, we voice teachers kind of feel like the exercises are something to be got through, right? Something to get through to the songs, like the songs are the fun sure. part. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. The songs is where the fun work is. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, I've always thought that I'm I'm so now more interested in exercise and development of the voice as a as a as a mechanical entity that. Uh, I think there are, I don't know if this is a, I don't see this a lot, this, this idea, this thinking of, of only songs, only arias. Yeah. Where, where Although I there see are it, some, I do have, I cannot say that I can't say that, but I do, there are some people who say, don't, don't do exercises, just I, do songs. Yeah. I don't see it much among teachers these days, but I do see it uh, a lot among uh, students who come in, um, you know, that, that, uh, uh, students don't believe exercises are important sometimes. Right. Um, and, you know, until, and th- th- that well, may they're be, young. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're young. <laughs> when or, they're young. Or they yeah. may have been given exercises that seemed pointless and didn't help them. <laughs> and they didn't know what they're doing. And they don't know what the exercises do. Sure. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh boy. Isn't it an education sometimes when you ask a student to tell you, oh, what does that exercise do for you? What, mm-hmm, what, mm-hmm. why, why do we do this? Do you think? And it's oh, like, oh, right, yeah. It can be I mean, I want that clinical, you know, examination of, of purpose, in the same <laughs> way that you would accept it of, uh, you would expect it of a trainer in a gym. 
Yeah. Why am I sitting in this contraption? And what is the purpose of me sitting here and doing this? What is this supposed to do for me? Yeah. Um, I think uh, it's very important. Um, Although I do see, I think I've seen some strains of modern pedagogy that sort of say, well, you know, exercises are silly. Learn to sing by doing songs. Yeah. But to that, I would always say, what song encapsulates everything of technique that you're going to need as a singer? I don't right. know of any song that contains every technical problem a singer will ever deal with. Well, and, and uh, a lot of teachers, especially uh, less experienced teachers, will not have ready mental access to the, the catalog of songs that would address a particular technical issue. Right. So, you know, that they, they wouldn't know what repertoire is, you know, best for fill in the blank, whatever the... Welcome Whatever to my the... first five years of teaching, Brian. Yes, all oh, mine too. Right. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm just like, okay, well, I learned this exercise. Now just do this. Right. Right. I don't know what it does, but I do this in my lessons. So you should do this. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's yeah. the extent of the analysis, right? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. No, diagnosis is the thing that we should be doing, right? As we listen to people sing. So those are the first 10 out of 52. Holy crow. That's a lot. Yeah. We'll, you know, well, uh, we'll come back to this again sometime. Yes, indeed. indeed. And I, I don't know if we're going to do this consecutively or not. We haven't talked about that. Yeah, we can mix it in. But we can, yeah, mix it in. There's there's so many riches. Absolutely. Lots to discuss in here. Lots to discuss, especially with regard, well, with, with regard to trends, right? Yes. I think this is a wonderful sort of historical document of, what were people doing that was crazy yep. 100 years ago, yes. nearly 100 years ago? Yes. And how are we repeating patterns? Are we guilty of the same crimes? It's a really interesting contemplation. Yes, it sure is. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, it's fun. Well, this is cool. Yeah. Very nice. Okay. Well, thus endeth introduction to Witherspoon. Yes, indeed. Thanks for joining us today on The Voice Culture Podcast. For more information, connect with us on our website, thevoiceculture.com.